Oops. Hey, 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 cat and kittens. <clears throat> we are live for episode three of The Debrief with Brianna Joy Gray, the show with the most insufferable pun that nobody seems to pick up on. <laughs> I'm your host, uh, Brianna. You might know me as uh, a host of Bad Faith Podcast or previously as uh, the deputy campaign man, <laughs> LOL, can you imagine? National Press Secretary of the Bernie Sanders campaign. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's been a long day. Uh, but a good one because I recorded a lot of great content earlier. I was so glad to join my friends over at uh, Breaking Points this morning to talk about the very episode we'll be talking about tonight. <clears throat> I additionally just finished an in-person recording session with, with um, Batya Angar Sargan, who just wrote a new book about woke culture that a lot of people have been talking about. And we were able to press down on a lot of points that we agree on, but a lot of points that I still, I guess, I'm kind of a lib about as compared to someone like her. And I think it was a really fruitful conversation. And now I'm glad to be joined by Andre Domis, who you've heard before on Bad Faith Podcast, and who was an incredibly thoughtful interlocutor, who I know had some pushback for me after the last episode of Bad Faith Podcast. While we wait for Andre to join the room, um, I'm, I'll catch you up for those who haven't actually listened and don't know what the contours of that discussion were like. So I think, as I mentioned, we had uh, Irene Osei-Frimpong, who's been on the podcast before. <clears throat> he is um, a PhD student uh, at the University of Athens, Georgia. And we had Zed Jelani, a former co-worker of mine at The Intercept, <clears throat> uh, who now has his own Substack uh, and is a heterodox thinker, as it were, both gentlemen are. And we had we recorded the conversation immediately after we recorded the previous episode about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial um, with my friend Olay <clears throat> uh, to dig down on some of the kind of philosophical issues that came up during that conversation about the limits of the utility of the word white supremacy. If a structural analysis means that basically everything is white supremacy, are there diminishing turn, uh, returns on using that term when it is shown to be alienating to people? And some people, <clears throat> like uh, uh, Irony might say, there's no point in coddling whites as it were. You know, you can't tiptoe around it. Racism is at the heart of what the issue is. Therefore, avoiding the issue will mean you don't have any real gains and you have to confront it head on. And that basically we need a kind of a re-education system where people basically are just you know, taught to be better. We basically debate or argue or re-educate racism out of people. <clears throat> and he, his critique was that, you know, it's not just that there's a kind of a systemic issue, but that whiteness as in and of itself, a kind of cultural whiteness is a problem. Um, something that both I and Zed pushed back against, the idea of using such a large blanket term to... Um, describe an entire racial group, not even just uh, sub-ethnic groups or national groups, but a, a group like the whites, as he described them, um, we argued was going a bit too far in a way that wasn't productive and also basically shored up a kind of white identity, as it were, that is exactly what white nationalists want us to have, right? This was a, I think a really compelling point that was made by Thomas Chatterson Williams during his episode, that there is a way that we can talk about race that performs a sort of race craft that ends up creating categories that 
ultimately are to the detriment of historically marginalized groups, right? There's there's an obvious downside to having overwhelming majorities of people in America identify with something called whiteness that is also in line with, you know, power and certain historical patterns of subjugation. So that was basically the contours of the argument. People felt a lot of different ways about it. I'm just checking to make sure I'm not missing the Andre. Oh, here he is. <clears throat> I'm going to invite him up to be a speaker. Hey, Andre, how's it going? Andre? Hello? Is it is it just me that I, that's not hearing you? Can other people hear? Can other people hear Andre? Give me give me a thumbs up if you can hear Andre and it's just me. Oh. Okay, so oh no, nobody can hear him but me. Nobody can hear him at all. Okay. I've been seeing thumbs down. Andre, I don't know what's going on. I'm gonna uh, allow Jay to speak just to see if it's something wrong with the app or if it's just you. Or I guess Kathy. Hey Kathy. What what's going on with you? Yeah, you got to unmute yourself, Kath. Kathy, you got to press the unmute on your mic. On the bottom right. You're still okay, muted. is that good? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, so okay. I can hear you, but I still can't hear Andre. So I'm not sure what's going on with you, Andre. But go ahead, Kathy. Well, um, I I thought if I just had a couple things to say about the Rittenhauer, Rittenhouse trial or how it was being sure how people were perceiving it um you know i i were i was a criminal defense attorney for a lot of years so i have some bias about you know um defendants rights um hmm. but you know i think that rittenhouse was a racist i i think that he was probably a shit i think nothing would have you know that he he pretty much caused it by bringing that gun to the to the um, demonstration. But you know, I also see the the Democrats just going all in on this, and it just reminds me that this doesn't really cost them much. You know, they can make this their big stand, which they always do with identity politics. They don't have to go against their donors or do anything that's going to cost them anything. And it just seems like they whip up a lot of this identity, racial identity, just because it's it's the only thing they can do without sounding like, uh, well, they sound like hypocrites, anyways. But you know, without going against their donors or, or doing anything that's gonna, you know, get us real any real material advantage, you know. So it just seems like a huge thing. Everybody, you know, not that it's no big deal, but you know, a couple of people died, but. It just, you wouldn't get this kind of, you know, reaction to anything that that costs them to, you know, talk about. Yeah, I do feel like there's a definite pattern where if there's a broad and intense investment from liberals in something, it's usually something that's not going to result in any material change for anybody, right? Like it's something that presents a, a challenge right. to right. A, an economic status quo. In this case, I, I really just, appreciate I'm just noting that with this. 
Yeah. And your perspective as a defense attorney is really interesting as well. You know, we had a defense attorney on the show and, you know, she had kind of passionate feelings about stuff. But toward the end, you know, we also got you know, she was able to acknowledge that you know, she doesn't want to see overreach. She ultimately uh, understands that certain gains um, for the defense does set some, you know, good precedent for her as well, right? And it's a different, it's a difficult catch-22 that we're in. P- choosing this particular case, though, as your hobby horse for the left does feel like a mistake when there's so many other cases to choose from. And as many conservatives have pointed out at this point, just the the facts of the matter were rolled out in such a disingenuous and misleading way that a lot of folks are parroting stuff that they genuinely didn't know was a misrepresentation and are now so committed to the idea of Kyle Rittenhouse being, you know, the villain. You know, I think on the show, you know, Irony said, you know, he's not really some Machiavellian figure here. He's more like a... um what's his name from The Simpsons, Ralph Wiggum from The Simpsons. And I think there's something that's really relatable about that, about that perspective. Um, Andre, can you do a one-two test to see if I can hear you again? I'm still not, I'm still not hearing him. Are you guys hearing him? Give me a thumbs down if you're not hearing him. Nope. All right. Okay. Kathy, I didn't, I didn't mean to um, cut you off. Did you have something else to say? Oops. Sorry. I didn't mean to make you a speaker, Kathy. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm all over the place. Um, Sorry, Kathy. Did you have anything else? I, I, you know, one more thing. I just want to say, it kind of reminds me of when the Me Too thing got started. Everybody was just, you know, like really gung ho on that. And I was, I mean, I consider myself a feminist. I'm, you know, I'm 62 years old. So I've been, you know, around the women's movement a long time. Um, but, I just felt like this was a big mistake, you know, um, and it kind of wound up being some way. You know? It just on anybody, you know. I mean, it, it kind of people went wild with it, and I just think that happens sometimes. I don't know. They don't think about how this could be used in another context. Yeah, They're you. always just stuck to the fact scenario that's right in front of them, you know, and see where it could be taken. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. You're breaking up a little bit. So I'm going to go to the next one, but I appreciate that. I, I was just actually saying this to Batia that there are some similarities here with you, me too, in part because what ended up happening was in the fervor to finally be listening to these stories, there was a, uh, people collapsed the varying degrees of transgression that had occurred so that Harvey Weinstein was held up in comparison to like Aziz Ansari, who just like had a bad date, you know, <laughs> like he was a little awkward, maybe a little pushy on a date. And that was it kind of compared to a serial rapist. So it's not to say that we can't have a, criti- a criticism of certain kind of like dating pressures and coercion and things like that that happen. But if we can't have a conversation that understands the differences between those things, then people are going to be, I think, increasingly unwilling to acknowledge any wrongdoing at the lower end of the scale, because if you admit anything, then suddenly you're a Weinstein. And I can see that happening now. Like, it's not that I object kind of on principle 
or in theory or descriptively to something being described as white supremacy. Certainly, like I, I come from that kind of academic world where I'm very used to speaking in those terms. But while out here in the real world, if, you know, someone like Kyle Rittenhouse who's going on TV saying he supports BLM and, you know, talking about prosecutorial misconduct and, oh my gosh, what, you know, in this most recent interview saying with Tucker Carlson, can you imagine if they were able to railroad me like this? What could happen if you were black? Like saying those kind of sympathetic statements, even if you don't believe them, if someone like that is being described as a white supremacist, I think that it, I'd arguably well, have the effect of collapsing what that, that term means. Looks like Andre's logged out and he's gonna log in again and see if it works this time. Um, in the interim, let's uh, hear from Jay. Uh, if, oh, nope, Jay went away, Omar. Nope, oh, nope. Sorry, Kathy. I meant to remove you from Q. Here we go. Omar. Hey, Bri, can you hear me? I can. Okay, I can. Awesome. Um, so on Twitter, there was, you know, a couple of the usual personalities making some comparisons um, between, like, the Simpson, the O.J. Simpson trial and Rittenhouse, which I thought was kind of irresponsible. Mm. The only kind of comparison that I could really come up with was I guess, like, the, I think the main narrative for the O.J. Simpson trial was, like, okay, white cops were getting off with murder for the longest time. Then O.J. caught this case for presumptively murdering his wife and someone else. And they came to the wrong verdict, right? Like, supposedly the evidence is, supposed, is pointing to him being guilty, but they get the wrong verdict. He got off um, innocent. And then, I don't know, I just think about the cynicism that kind of goes into the way we talk about these things because it seems like with OJ, people were kind of happy because he he got off, right? Which I think was the wrong verdict. And then now when you come to Rittenhouse, for me, it's like the complete opposite, right? It's like we have this white kid, and in my personal opinion, with Rittenhouse was the correct verdict. But then if you ask, why, what if Rittenhouse was black, Mexican, whatever you want, right? And I just think about this question where it's like, okay, if he, if Rittenhouse would have been black and people would have still been mad and still would have wanted him to get jail, I mean, for me, that doesn't make sense. That kind of puts the left in a really messed up situation. But then if you say that people would have indeed flipped if he was black for some reason, well, that just kind of proves the point that maybe, you know, some of them may be racist or just kind of basing their decisions on skin color. So. I'm just trying to figure out where that leaves the left where just it's pure cynicism where like, you know, you're against what I perceive to be a correct verdict just because the kid was white. Some people just wanted him to get some kind of punishment regardless, which I understand. And I think that would have been reasonable, but I just don't know where we stand because the kid would have been black every, and yeah. people would have continued to be mad at him. That just proves the point of the right where like, we don't care about principles. We just care about yeah. locking up our, our political opponents. So yeah, that's that's it. Thanks, thanks, Omar. I, I think that's I think that's a good point. I think that a lot of defense attorneys, you know, however you feel emotionally about it, think that there was a good self defense case for Kyle Rittenhouse, and obviously the jury agreed. So, and we talked about this a little bit with Ole. You know, part of the problem of focusing so specifically on individuals and holding up individuals as is kind of. Um, spokespeople for causes is that it doesn't necessarily these different fact patterns don't necessarily provide a consistent 
kind of legal metric for what how we want these outcomes to turn out. And the problem is, ultimately, if you think Rittenhouse, as you say, should have been accountable for something, then it's not really a conversation about whether the jury came to the right ver- verdict or whether the jury was racially motivated or any of these kinds of things. It's why is it that the law allows for there to be this kind of like plausible escape route because it has all of these incredibly subjective standards built into it in terms of a reasonable person standard, subjective views of fear and risk and danger and a failure to accommodate in a, the decision-making process, the person's assumption of risk and bringing a gun like that into a scenario that automatically, yes, ratchets, ratchets up the, his exposure to credible threat to personal harm, right? And how much responsibility does somebody have just not to put themselves in, in harm's way? And the law, you know, that, that's why I think we should be, we should be talking about systems because that's a systemic issue. And so many of the, so often we don't really engage with those things because we don't perceive things like the law as being able to be structured differently. We see them as immutable and kind of like passed down from some tablet on, on high instead of the product of our communities and something that we can change. Um, Andre is back. Can, can I hear you this can time, I- around, Andre? Can I be heard now? Is uh is yes. the app still crashing? All right. <laughs> we made it work. Fantastic. Yes. Andre, for those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Uh yep. Yeah. So my name is Andre Demise. I am a writer with McLean's magazine in Canada, as well as a freelancer. I've been published in uh publications such as the Washington Post, uh, the American Prospect, uh, Vice, and several other publications. Um, currently hosting a podcast on Colin, along with Glenn Greenwald, called Unredacted, as well as a... a uh, God. we Internally, we call it the Majority Report for Tankies, uh, called theculture.tv that streams on Twitch <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> member member of the Communist Party of Canada and a member of Black Alliance for Peace. Okay, I love it. People should definitely um, subscribe to and follow your shows on Colin. I love this little Colin community that's growing here. What days do you normally record your show with Glenn? So the uh, show with Glenn unredacted is normally on Tuesdays at four thirty p.m. Eastern Time. Oh, okay, perfect. So earlier today. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we had our first episode today, although it was a bit late because uh, Glenn uh, and all of his uh, project management prowess had uh, <laughs> scheduled a recording time for when he was going to be on the road back from uh, Rio de Janeiro. Well, that's the beauty of Colin, right? You can kind of do it mobile, on the go. Yeah. <laughs> no, he had to do it when he was at... Sorry, it wasn't Rio. It was, it was, it was Sao Paulo. But uh, yeah, uh, so anyway, we're, we're a bit late starting today, but we had a really good conversation. It's just like an introductory you know, who we are, what we're about, et cetera. Well, Andre, the reason I wanted to talk to you today in this debrief about the latest bad faith is because I know you had a lot of thoughts and feelings about how that conversation went. So uh, do you want to start by maybe just giving, giving your take on this question of uh, utility of the word white supremacy and how to get at the bottom of this ongoing cultural issue we're in? Oh, God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um <laughs> I was talking about this earlier, or it was last week, actually, it was last week. It feels like one forever day. But uh, I I Mm -hmm. deliberately avoided having any sort of public-facing opinion on Kyle Rittenhouse, or on the Rittenhouse Mm -hmm. trial, specifically because I think that um, 
getting caught in the day-to-day and the cut and thrust of the trial before anything's been determined, it invests you in an outcome. And I, I, I think that I've seen enough from Canadian and U.S. and U.K. and other justice systems where hoping for an outcome doesn't change the outcome. So there's no point getting emotionally invested and only talking about it once you have a full recounting of facts and the verdict available. So once uh, the uh, the verdict did come out, it actually shocked me the extent to which people were uh, framing the uh, the acquittal through the lens of white supremacy, which to me is the wrong frame of analysis for the verdict. It it does it does play a part. I think that there is there. I mean, if you've read um, Noel Ignatiev in his book Race Traders, there there is an extent to which you can say that white supremacy may have played a part, i.e. if the uh, two men that Kyle Rittenhouse shot were there ostensibly protesting on behalf of black lives, then there is an element that you can say exists where somebody who exists as a race traitor, somebody who is taking up for the cause of the the socially subordinate underclass, uh, that they are traitors to the dominant majority. That's that's a possibility, but I don't see people doing that. What I see them doing instead is saying, well, this just proves the system is white supremacist. It's a white guy who shot two white men. <laughs> Let's just be perfectly honest. And if you are, if you are going to bring, if you okay. are going to bring the, uh, if you're going to bring the element of it, that, uh, if they were there to support a BLM related uprising, we can do that. But why did, why did Rittenhouse by his own recounting, like by his own words, why did he say that he was in Kenosha that day? Well, he was there to protect property that he wishes that he would, he uh, had the ability to shoot anti-protesters because they jeopardize and endanger property. And the set of social relations that exists between uh, people like the Antifa protesters, when you hear uh, right-wingers talking about like the blue-haired, masked up, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, college fascist Antifa, what they're talking about is people who in some senses pose a threat to the status quo, to the established order. And the reason that they have these homicidal fantasies, which I think some of them have lived out vicariously through Kyle Rittenhouse, is because somebody who who poses a threat to the established order, the, the system as it exists, is somebody that can easily be, be flushed out. And once you flush that problem out, uh, then you can declare the problem solved. So, you know, President Trump literally had uh, an Antifa protester extrajudicially murdered like that that actually happened on, on Trump's watch and people celebrated yeah. it. So I was, I was actually shocked that people didn't connect that extrajudicial murder to Kyle Rittenhouse, essentially deputizing himself to act on the police's behalf, especially considering that the police had kettled protesters towards where uh, right wingers, the counter protesters who were armed and had said that they were willing to use them. They were kettled into that area and the outcome I think was inevitable. So the argument that's being made by folks, I think the, the best white supremacy argument that's being made is that Kyle Rittenhouse's identity of interest with property owners who he did not know that he had no personal relationship, many of whom, some of whom at least I believe were people of color, but his kind of ideological commitment to the idea that property somewhere else should be protected by him and the feeling that he was going to be in simpatico with the law enforcement, with with the state and that effort, is in fact evidence of white supremacy. That relationship to private property 
right? Like, I mean, it's just, I'm just steel milling it, made in the argument. But that is something that is yeah, fundamentally no, I, I that. white in nature, right? Like, uh, rooted in kind of a white Western conception of property ownership. And moreover, because this of the is, relationship of is, white people yeah. to the state that is not shared by black people to the state, you would never get a black person in that situation. And they, I mean, had it been, had it been, had it been a black person that was, uh, that was marching alongside the counter protesters that, uh, shot a white person that was marching alongside BLM, that'd be an interesting dynamic, but I actually think that the same outcome would have occurred. I think that, uh, had the police kettled, uh, the protesters towards, uh, the armed counter protesters or the, the property defenders and Kyle Rittenhouse was a black youth that shot two men that were you know, members of, of, I, I can't even say whether they're members of Antifa, but they were seen as members of Antifa. Had it been a black 17 year old who shot those two men, I think he probably would have been acquitted. I think he comes. I, well, no, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I say that when, when not, a black person would not have been in a situation, is a black person would not have taken it upon themselves. And this is conjecture, you know, but the idea being that a black person would right. not have taken it upon themselves to feel like they needed to defend somebody else's property somewhere else. Because we don't have those same well, feelings. Well, there's, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of black police officers, aren't there? I mean, there's black right, there's black the, police different. officers that are out there, like uh, you know, roughing up youth no, no, no. And, uh, and and strip searching them every day. Like, but yeah. it's the, the argument. It's, it's different. It's a different argument than that. This is an argument about our relationship to other people's property and feeling like. So, for example, there there are these arguments about like what happens in public housing, and that because there's no private ownership in a public housing, and because there's so little respect. I mean, the city doesn't do trash pickups pick up, pick up as often. There's um, no reason for anyone to invest in their particular unit. Um, culturally, these units tend to decompose, right? And the residents don't like treat the units respectfully in these high rise buildings. But if you design the building differently so that it feels like separate units, people have yards, people have a sense of the, the the sense of ownership, even if they if they don't actually own the property, then it affects people's behavior, right? And so the argument is that Black people, because of our relative lack of property ownership in this country, don't feel that same sense of possession over other people's stores. And that Kyle even feeling like, oh gosh, I have so many feelings. I have so much angst about some random store being you know, looted or burned down somewhere that I'm going to take my gun as a 17 year old and intervene personally and put my life at risk. It's just something that the average black person is not going to have because of a different relationship with property, not going to defend your uncle's house, not defending your own store, right. But defending some property because there's the argument is there's a a, more of a white cultural identity with the kind of vague sense of property ownership because of 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 the country. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, the, you know, the chair of the Proud Boys up until recently was an Afro-Cuban by the name of Enrique Taurio. You know, uh, there's uh, people like uh, uh, Sheriff uh, David Clark, you know, who is one of the most anti-Black people that you will find in the country. Uh, Larry Elder uh, stood at, you know, I think a, a fairly credible chance of winning the governorship of California. There, there are always black people that believe that their pro- their path to being fully assimilated into the American project comes through uh, assimilating themselves culturally and aligning themselves alongside capital. So I, I, I know that the belief might be the average person, the average black person doesn't feel the same pull towards defending other people's property, people that they've never met and in enforcing order. 
but the fact of the matter is there are always going to be people, whether you want to call them compradors or whether you want to call them, you know, uh, traders or assimilationists or whatever you want to say, there are always going to be black people that feel the need to prove themselves American or Canadian or British or whatever. You often see them, uh, you know, prove this by joining the police, joining the military, et cetera. But then there are plenty of people that will will deliberately deputize themselves into uh, into the ranks of. Uh, there's what, always there's always people who do something of anything, and I'm, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying I even agree with this argument. Yeah. But the fact of some outliers doesn't disprove the rule, right? In 80, 80 whatever percent of Black people vote for Democrats. The fact Democrats. The fact that you point to some Black people who don't is relevant. You know, it's it's a fact that cannot be ignored right. and should not be ignored. But it is also perfectly fair to say to start to try to like draw conclusions about why it is that the overwhelming majority of black people vote for Democrats and to say that there is something going on there more than just happenstance. And in a similar case, obviously there are some black conservatives, hmm. right? Obviously. And I think there was a cultural conservative that runs through even many black Democrats. Totally. But there doesn't seem to be for one reason or another these instances of black people feeling the need to arm themselves and going to defend random property. Now they do have black people who arm themselves. And for example, I don't know if they were armed, but the black Panthers were standing in solidarity at the Ahmaud Arbery case, but that wasn't about property. That was about the interest of a black person who they feel is being, right. who, who has been murdered by the state, right. Who has been done wrong by the state because of his race or, or well, no, by, not, not, not by the state, but by the by vigilantes. vigilantes. Yeah. An- another case of vigilantism. Right. People who basically deputize themselves as unarmed at the the state. Right. So I I see a lot of that identity of interest among black people on a racial basis, but not so much on this like commitment to quote unquote respect for property. And and that's not here nor there. I'm just trying to steel man the case that people are making that there's something to do with white supremacy here. Is it your is it your opinion that the Kyle Rittenhouse case has absolutely nothing to do with white supremacy? No, like I said, it's, it's not that it has nothing to do with. I think that you can view it. I think that white supremacy does have something to do with it, but that's the nature of capitalism and imperialism itself, is that there will always be a a racial aspect to it. I mean, racial capitalism does exist. So to, to pretend as though it's entirely to do with uh, defensive property and nothing to do with race whatsoever, I think is probably a bit naive at best. Uh, but I think that viewing it entirely through the, the, the lens of white supremacy is also kind of foolish. And the reason for that is that a lot of people who have been getting book deals, bylines, et cetera, over the last five or six years, talking about white supremacy have been doing so at the expense of any kind of class analysis. So they... I'm talking about like the Ibram Kendi's, the Ta-Nehisi Coates's of the world, uh, even people like uh, uh, Robin D'Angelo and even, you know, Ijoma Aluo, that there's no class dimension to their analysis. I, I, uh, there was a book by Isabel Wilkerson that came out recently called Cast, uh, which was really funny to me because the, the first mm-hmm. person to use the word caste in a significant analysis of the way that races lived in America was uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox. He wrote a book called caste class and race. And essentially, uh, you know, he analyzed the American racial system uh, as a parallel to the Indian caste system 
but threw in elements of uh, class analysis and Marxism alongside it. But if you read Il- Isabel Wilkerson's book, mm-hmm. Cast, she does a very similar thing, but at no point in the book, and I have both the hard copy and the digital version, there is nowhere in the book that you will actually find the word capitalism in there. There's no, ca- there's no, there's no class analysis <laughs> in it whatsoever. And she's incredibly dismissive of Oliver Cromwell's uh, Cox's uh, book, from which I think she borrows a significant amount of credibility um, writing writing on that topic, but she dismisses him almost as a crank entirely. So what's what's happened over the last several years that I think has been stoppered um, by the failure to properly analyze a Donald Trump, or you know to uh, to analyze a Donald Trump without doing you know RussiaGate and Trump bad nonsense, is that people try to look at the American project through this 1619 lens where everything is a but-for argument, as my friend and comrade, Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly says, that is, but for white supremacy, America would be a perfect project. And what that does is entirely eliminate the class dimension and, I think, shit on a lot of significant scholars, activists, etc., who, who have had superior analyses to them. Is that what 1619 argues? I think that 1619 argues that uh, America has a set of ideals that is realized in the Black Liberation Project. That is probably the most succinct way that I can put it. And I think that that's a lot of bullshit. I think that... You know what's funny? I spent spent so much time defending 1619 when it's the last thing in the world I want to do. Go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I think if you want to read a a proper analysis of uh, America and its democratic project, quote unquote, is if you read Gerald Horn's book, um, The the American Counter-Revolution, where Gerald Horn actually says, no, the, the American project is a bourgeois reaction to uh to uh to the end of the british monarchy so it was a revolution all right but was it a revolution by uh you know uh, uh, scrappy diehard colonialists that that wanted individual rights and freedom or was it a collection of bourgeois landowners that were trying to keep a more significant cut of their own profits and i think that gerald horn completely blows up this myth that it had anything to do with democracy and everything to do with a, uh, with, with a counter-revolution on behalf of the bourgeois. Uh, I, I think, I, I think like, that's, I think I, that 1619 I, takes this, uh, this, this American exceptionalist project that America is this shining beacon of freedom and democracy while almost completely flushing out the class dimension to say that no, America is a great country. It is a great society, but in order to be kept honest and, and kept to its word, it requires uh, the inclusion of of black liberationist politics. Hmm. I, I I don't know. I certainly the sixteen nineteen. And again, I haven't I haven't read every essay, but I certainly read um, Nicole Hannah Jones's essay. My impression of her essay and her broader analysis is that it does exclude class quite painfully, in fact. But I don't necessarily get the sense that she's saying that America would be perfect but for race. I just think that she actually just has a blank space in her brain. <laughs> like she just hasn't gotten that far. Like she, she, hasn't, she hasn't even imagined a world where 
race hasn't been a problem in America and hasn't even gotten to the like the next steps of what else would be left to fix. Like she just is so preoccupied with this one singular issue. Well, which is not like I, I think, her in any I think when way. you're I think when you're giving speeches that are sponsored by Shell, uh, the Dutch Shell oil company and the very same company uh, essentially sponsored a uh, massacre in Nigeria of a uh, uh, you know socialist uh, revolutionaries who were against the Dutch Shell oil company, essentially carving up their uh, their land and extracting from it and paying the workers jack shit to the extent that they were hanged for the crime of protesting. I think if you believe in, uh, you know, like a, a Black Lives Project, but you're being sponsored by the Dutch Shell Oil Company, which has, uh, through several, uh, you know, through through African governments, um, murdered uh, protesters and political dissidents, then your view on black politics is at the very least warped. Well, certainly nobody's arguing otherwise. I don't think I need to explain to anybody on this call the history of disagreement that I've had with Nicole Hannah-Jones. I just don't, I don't, you know, I hesitate to 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 co-sign the idea that she has a, like a but for perspective. It's, it's literally, it's, it's literally in the, uh, in, in the uh, synopsis of the 1619 project that was pitched to people before it was even released. The, it, it, it actually was phrased in those terms that the American liberationist project or that, uh, you know, that uh, um, uh, black people in the civil rights era, held america to its own standards that's that's how they phrased it so i i mean I, yeah but that's not the same thing as saying that but for racism uh but for racial hierarchy america would be perfect i mean sure but i don't see i don't see in that out of all of the essays in that project i didn't see any critique of american imperialism i didn't see a critique of capitalism i didn't i i didn't see a critique of america outside of the the lens through which black people have been well right because she's obsessed. yeah there, but there's there, there's she's obsessed with this one project. right 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 I mean, so is- so what else are you saying that if it wasn't so if it wasn't for the fact that black people have been underneath the yoke of racism uh since america's inception i mean since that that is the only criticism that they have for america then what what other conclusion can i come to well, look, it's the only criticism they talk about. I, I wouldn't go into some like vegan chat and be like, why aren't you guys talking about imperialism? And sometimes the vegans want to get together and talk about animal rights. And sometimes, you know, you, the vegans should be talking about imperialism. I mean, I mean, maybe they, sh- I mean, they, maybe they should, but they, like sometimes people discreetly drill down. Like sometimes you write a book about blowing up pipelines. Sometimes you write a book about, you know, people have limited space. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, my issue with her isn't that she, I, I, I had the same. I had the exact same conversation. I had the exact same conversation with environmentalists. Right. If you're no, Andre, if you're an environmentalist and you're not talking about imperialism, then you're not you're not taking your own project seriously. Andre, my 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 quibble with her is not that she focuses on race. I think it's fine for people to have different focuses and different areas of expertise. My quibble with her is that she openly derides um, any program of economic uplift if it is not a race first program and prioritizes racial equality as a condition of, uh, as a precondition of pursuing any kind of political project that is economic and universalist in nature and not racial and racially targeted program. And that then she becomes an obstacle to the broader uplift. And that's why I find her to be pernicious in such an issue. Not because like she has her hobby horse, like it is what she was an education expert before. Now she's doing this. It is what it is. But this is all like radically off topic. 
we should get back to this question of white supremacy. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, 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 feel no, like but, had, but I think, I mean, it does, well, let me, it let does me have, I mean, it, well, let me ask you this, Andre, because I really do want to get us back on. Topic. Sure. Sure. Yeah, sure. You had some specific comments about the arguments that were being made, I think by Zed in particular, in the context of the um, podcast. And Zed's, oh and yeah. Zed's argument was that basically it was inappropriate. And this aspect of the argument I agree with, that it was inappropriate to basically talk about the whites in the way that Irony was doing because it was basically an overly broad subject and that culture whiteness wasn't really at play. And you kind of started off this conversation by saying that you didn't think that white supremacy was really at play in the context of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. So do you think that there is a way that we use the word white supremacy, that the broad left talks about white supremacy in a world that is in a way that is ultimately overly broad and and perhaps unproductive in the way that the Me Too movement ended up collapsing minor transgressions like i had a bad date with serial rapists and abuse abusers and groomers and such there's a really good book um by an author named david rudiger uh called the wages of whiteness where he picks up on w.e.b du bois's uh um uh, w.e.b du bois was the was the first person to talk about the wage of whiteness but rudiger expands on the subject so du bois brought it up in the book um black reconstruction in america and Rodiger picks it up in, in the wages of whiteness. And, and what this is about is that for the average white person of the working class, the the absence of satisfaction to the class, the reason that people are making, you know, dirt wages, uh, not having health care, essentially for a country that considers itself first world, uh, that people within that country are living on meager wages uh terrible social benefits america i mean we don't have to list like the 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 number of uh social benefits that other countries have that america doesn't least of which being like healthcare, maternity leave and, and so on and so on but there's a, a wage that's paid to those working class mm-hmm. people which is like a racial wage and lbj uh, to paraphrase what he was saying is that uh you know if you can convince the uh, the lowest white man that he's better than a negro he'll not only let you pick his pockets but he'll turn them out for you and so there, there, there is a dimension to which you can talk about mm-hmm. uh, the the wages of whiteness and how white supremacy functions to recruit somebody like a Kyle Rittenhouse and those counter protesters into deputizing themselves as property defenders. I think there is room for that conversation. I think because Irami has these these conversations a lot with groups of people that generally understand what he means and where he's coming from, maybe he could have explained himself much better on the Bad Faith podcast. No, I, 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 I do think it. so. Because we've talked about this before. I, I've asked him specifically about whether he feels like the language that he uses is alienating. And he says he right. doesn't care that he will talk like this in front of everybody, that they need to hear it that basically we shouldn't tiptoe around, he uses the word coddle a lot, we should not coddle, quote, the whites, and that you cannot tiptoe around this because this racism is at the core of what's driving everything, and you have to confront it head on and basically beat it out of people. Okay, well, I don't think that you're ever going to (laughs) confront and and beat racism out of people, and frankly, I I don't care to. I'm not anybody, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not anybody's psychotherapist, right? So it's not up to me to, like, there's not going to be, like, some sort of, like, uh, racial consciousness 
activation code like the Winter Soldier. If I just find the right words or the the right rhetoric, it's never gonna fucking happen. I I frankly just I don't care. Um, but I think that there is at least the ability to develop class consciousness among our commonalities, and the 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 first way to do that is to disrupt this idea that there's anything besides a class divided in America. A lot of people have this idea that they are middle class, whether they make $20,000 a year or whether they make $250,000 a year. They think that they belong to this class of people because they are aspirational petty bourgeois, right? So uh, if you are somebody who's willing to go out and defend property, maybe you'll be noticed. Maybe you'll be like, you know, noticed by the right person. You'll be recruited into the right club. You're going to be able to move yourself upward economically by getting into this, this, this class of people that seem to be upwardly mobile while everybody else is remaining stagnant. And that's where you can influence their culture, podcaster culture, minor celebrity culture. It all plays into that. Everybody's trying to get picked. Everyone's trying to get chosen. Everyone's trying to be the next Glenn Beck or whoever. Right. So that that I think is like such a permeating factor in American politics. It exists to some extent in Canada as well. I would I would say probably not as much, but everyone talks like a fucking prosecutor or a TV pundit because they're trying to get recruited into those ranks. And I think all of this is to, to mystify and to obscure the existence of class politics. Everyone does like nobody wants to believe that they're actually part of the group of people that has the least amount of power. Nobody nobody wants to believe that they're powerless. I uh, yeah. I mean, first of all, Andre, podcasts podcast hosts are infinitely <laughs> powerful. I mean, well, no, apparently, no like, uh, po- podcasters have the ability to, like, turn people fascists. So, hey, who who knows? Maybe that Winter Soldier activation code is a real thing after all. But, like, I mean, look, but you know what I mean, though? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. I mean, I, I've always, I've often felt like, you know, obviously, I am in a, a, privilege, a relatively privileged cohort. And yet, because of my student loans, I don't really see myself owning and because I live in like I'm from New York and don't especially want to not be near my family in New York. I don't really see myself owning property. Like I don't see it realistically. I'm not going to spend half a million dollars on a studio apartment. You know what I mean? It's not going to, that's not. Even people that own property don't really own property. I mean, you might have your name on, on a, on a, you know, a title for a piece of property, but the bank owns the property. (laughs) They're the ones that really own and control it. But my point, but but my point is that I I think that I see people around me and I see my friends' politics changing as they have kids and buy houses and things and I I see in them that spark of in, of, of that that Kyle Rittenhouse spark that I you know these protests are cool so long as they're peaceful but if they come my way I, I have an issue right and I, I think that I don't mean that as a criticism obviously that I, itself is that that is class recruitment that is how that works this idea that you know right. this this piece of property that has your name on the title actually belongs to you and it doesn't a business that you you may have for example like a corner store a convenience store a bodega you might have a clothing store whatever a cake shop but right. and I, it might yeah, have your name on the uh, sole proprietorship but you're leasing that property out from the the owner of that uh, that 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 uh, that strip mall or that plaza or whatever, you don't really actually, you hardly own anything. Um, this, right. That, yeah. That's uh, under that. So that's, that's the argument I'm making. That's what I'm, that's what I'm describing. And sure, yeah. what I think is really interesting about that is as I look down the barrel of my life and the kind of choices that I make, it is a little scary to think, gosh, my, you know, the push, the cultural push to have children butts up against this reality that it might make me a real asshole. You know, or, you know, it might make me someone who's suddenly concerned about whether they build multifamily apartments in my neighborhood, you know, it might be make me 
someone who is looking wearily at protests that I 10 years before looked at enthusiastically. And I, I think about student loan debt and the way that that's been this new way to capture people um, and prevent them from having the kind of the flexibility and mobility to take different kinds of jobs, start their own kinds of business. The fact that not having universal health care is a pr- primo way to keep people locked into a kind of a, a corporatized institutional work situation, despite the fact that there's so much rhetoric in this country about wanting folks to be entrepreneurial and strike out on their own. Healthcare costs are one of the biggest costs that any business startup has to deal with. And, you know, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to think about. But again, somehow we got off the subject of white supremacy, <laughs> Andre, that I really wanted you to stick with because you had so many thoughts. You were all in my DMs about this episode. I- no i just i think i think that uh, i think that zed i think where zed went went i think a little bit off the rails i mean granted again i think that uh i think if you were to ask irony to break down where his uh thoughts on the matter come from or where his like philosophy on uh white supremacy and how it intersects with class and so forth i think if you asked him to break those ideas down it probably wouldn't sound too different from what i said i think he's I think he's at a point where he's had to explain it so many times over and over. He's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to fucking explain this anymore. Like catch up or don't, you know, it's, it's up to you. Um, I think the, the. Well who, well, who was that even for? Who is he saying to catch up or don't? Like, yeah. This is my problem. And I said this to Iron, I'm not talking about him behind his back. This is my problem with his approach. Who he thinks in a country that is 70% white, you can just holler truths into the wind and everyone's get all these white people are going to be like, Oh yes, I'm going to, Go, you know, give up my wages of whiteness to help you, black person who's screaming at me and calling me a white supremacist. Yes, this is entirely how this is going to go. And anything short of doing that is evidence that you are sympathetic to white supremacy, that you want to coddle whites, that you are somehow insecure mm-hmm. and don't have the but strength not, to build not your interests. Right, but not everybody is a, a diplomat. Not everybody is a pundit. Irami's job is not to be a pundit, I don't think. Irami's job is to take complex ideas and, and break them down into terms that are available to people that aren't right. academics. When I, when I ask, ask Irami what that looks like in practicality, what it looks like to have a re-education program, you don't get to just say, like, I, you can't say, oh, I'm an academic, so my idea to, like, I, I think we should all flap our wings and fly to the moon. Okay, well, how? Like, just because I'm an academic doesn't mean that I don't have to substantiate this bizarro theory that I just came up with, right? Or else it's useless. I mean, (laughs) listen, I spend a lot of time with my head in the books and I will say that nobody really breaks this stuff down for me. I have to do my own work to catch up to where, you know, advanced thinkers are at. So I kind of understand this. Like if you're somebody who works in academia there's going to be a certain degree of frustration with having to make your content available for, you know, the, uh, for the, the hoi polloi. So I, I, I kind of, I kind of get that, but I I don't think that's necessarily his job. I think, I think it's the job of people like yourself, yourself and myself to make these ideas available. This is why I don't read. You were mad at me for saying, (laughs) this is why I don't read. Cause it's bullshit. I'm so tired of this, Andre. You need to read. Hey, listen, no, no. if I have to come down to New York city myself, Okay, no. and force you to read you the Communist Manifesto. I will do this. 
if you can't open your mouth and explain to someone, you want the proletariat to rise up and everybody to have this consciousness and da 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 da. da. People aren't stupid. I'm not saying you don't. don't people the don't Red read. Army was handing out pamphlets to peasants and making them read pamphlets. You know, Okay. Pamphlet. The pedagogy of the oppressed is not a dumb book. It doesn't simplify things down. But if you can't also put into your words, simple words, your ideas, then your ideas probably aren't that good. And if you're sitting here saying, well, someone else has to synthesize this thought I have before da 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 da, we're going to crush it. Yes, because have you tried to read. Have you tried to read the Communist Manifesto? No, Andre, I have spent the last. It's a brick. Andre, I spent the last year of my life having every expert okay. of every single kind come on this podcast and asking me to explain and asking them to explain in plain language what we should do next. What small right. step, big step? I don't care. I'm not asking you to change the whole world overnight, but say one thing, concrete thing people can do to put us on the right path. One concrete idea that we should proselytize to our friends and families that will help them gain the kind of consciousness that we need so that they can vote the right way so they can act in their communities in the right way etc and the, you, want, you want an answer people, to that you want no, an answer you no, want an answer Andre, no i'm going to finish this thought okay okay the, okay, the, okay the thing that they say repeatedly it's either i don't know that's a good question or I feel, organized just i feel personally i feel organized Personally, attack like you're lumping me in with the academics and the scholars and the the the, the high talkers living in their ivory towers that have no idea what to do next. Well, I, I will tell you. Again. I will tell you what to do next. You know what they. You know what you know. You know what needs to be done next in Canada. It's what? out. It's it's organizing for housing rights, and in the United States, uh-huh. it's organizing for healthcare. That is it. That is that is literally where you begin. Okay. I want to say so organizing. We got, another, we got another organizer. We got another just organize. I mean, do you, do you, I mean, the, the, the actual answer that's in the back of my head is one that I can't see on call. And otherwise I may, you know, end up on a list somewhere. <laughs> so if you're... Well, we talk about stuff like that on, I, I, I told on our last environmental episode with David Wallace yeah. Wells, I told him, I don't think I'm going to do another envi- environmental episode unless it's with Andreas mom who wrote how to blow up a pipeline. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of tired about sitting right. around and, I respect that some people need to just get up to date on facts and all of that. And that's fine. And there's back episodes they can listen to. And there's plenty of content. Okay. But uh, when, when I, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just want to, I want to not step over a thing. So when you say, oh, so it's just more organizing. Like, what do you think I mean by organizing? When I say that, well, organizing that's the for, thing. You, okay. you need to start being specific. And I have organizers on and I say, be specific. And oftentimes you're going okay. to the circular conversation where they say, well, the problem is that unit density is low. So, you, you know, you, you, everyone just has to like, organize their workplace okay can you give me like talk to people who have never been a part of a union who've never been part of an organized labor force what it means to organize their workshop we have had uh workers from collectivo coffee which just organized like before they managed to be successful come on and talk about how they were figuring it out for the first time and they were successful no one can sit here and tell me that bad faith hasn't had a focus on and uplifted and tried to educate people on these issues. That's not the issue. This is, I am not diminishing the right. I didn't say that. I, I'm just but, asking what you, I'm asking what you think I mean when I say that is all. But the fact of the matter is sitting around lecturing people that they haven't read enough, talking about these abstract concepts and saying that like, Oh, you know, someone else has to sympathize. It's your job. I to sympathize. That is, I that is a moving proposition. And when I don't lecture said, people that they haven't read enough, I will lecture you. You need to read these books, not your audience. I, I, I will tell your audience, I, hey, the first thing that you ought to be doing no is a, a, absolutely I mean, irony. Excuse I, me. Sorry. No, uh, Andre. <laughs> All I do is read. The point is, I, don't, I, 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 I literally read 250 pages in the last 12 hours for an interview I had to do today. Plus, I consumed like four right. hours of her interview content. All I do is consume content for you people. 
so I can keep up with what's happening people, today. Who are you people? I haven't written anything that you have to consume. I will tell. I will point people. And hey, when do you ever see me say, "Go read the article that I wrote," okay, or "Go read this thing that I did"? I never do that. But I do. I, I, when you were on the yeah. podcast, I read the, everything I could find from you and the two other guests on the show. Consumed ver, 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 voraciously. I always. Content, so I know what I'm talking about and can ask you guys incisive questions. So when someone like Irony comes on and sure, was, sure. who is in the position of being the expert of offering solutions to contributing to the conversation, and to, like I, I, I'm not trying to misrepresent Irony. He's been on the show twice. I think I have a very. I listen. I listen to the funky academic. I think he has interesting ideas. That's why I have him on. But there are often ideas that I don't agree with. And I think in the way that he talks about the whites and white cultural racism as though 70% of this country has one culture is reductive and unhelpful and basically opens the door for people to do the same thing about black people, except we have a lot less power. And there, I, I will say, I will say, I will say the, the, the facet of defining oneself as white does create a culture by which a uniform type of racism does exist he's not wrong in that i think though that people fail to distinguish whiteness as no 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 that's not his argument that's my argument my argument is that he's doing race craft by creating something called whiteness that empowers people to want to belong to a group that is oppressive that's a bit of a my that's that's that's, that's barbara fields's argument that's the that's a semi argument yeah yeah, no that's like a semi afro pessimist argument and i'm not really a fan of it myself um, it's not Afro pessimist. It's semi. I said semi. Like it's. It, oh my god. It's like a riff. You know. It's like a. It's like a remix. It's a freestyle on it. I'm not saying it's Afro pessimist. What part of that? What Afro? What part of that is Afro pessimist? The the idea of like black people on the bottom at the effect of a uh sort of like a, a global caste system of which whiteness sort of lands on top and blackness is the like the antipode to that. That's that's not the argument. Okay. The argument is that whiteness is constructed the same way all races constructed that there are various groups that have immigrated to this country and not been perceived as white but have been subsumed into whiteness and that by right. talking about whiteness in a certain way that um uh, talking about people as belonging to a group called whiteness in a certain way creates manifests a racial broader identity that gives people the wages of whiteness that they ought they w- might not have automatically felt like they were entitled to and basically sure. it's a white nationalist dream to have people some random person fresh off the boat from Croatia or whatever, who didn't have an identity as a white person, I actively want to buy in to the most powerful group in the country that they are perceived to be entitled to just because of the color of their skin. Why wouldn't they? We shouldn't but talk about is, yeah. Trump But voters. this is true. I wrote an article um, back in 2017 called The Problem with Calling Trump Racist. Or so I forget what it was called. But it was basically an argument against the Ta-Nehisi Coates for... Um, thing of like Trump is the first white president. Like they there was this push to identify Trump with whiteness and white supremacy when obviously his class he's presented a greater class threat to everybody, including working class whites, than anybody in recent history with his, you know, trillion dollar plus tax cuts and all of these other kinds of things. And the narrative, the cultural social narrative could have been Trump is bad for poor people. Trump is bad for poor people. Instead the Charles Blows of the world sat and beat the same drum of Trump is bad for black people, even though Chris Rock very astutely, or maybe it was Chappelle, I forget, very astutely pointed out, no, he's great for me. He's great for rich people. We all got a tax break. Yeah, that was Dave Chappelle. That was Dave, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle. And I, no, I, no I, he, Brianna, I'm not disagreeing with you. I kind of feel like, uh, I feel like in some ways, your frustrations with people like a Ta-Nehisi Coates and a Charles Blow, and to some extent, Aramiose Frempong, are, are being channeled through me. And I'm saying like, 
I'm just trying to explain where some of these cats are coming from, but these aren't necessarily my beliefs or my arguments per se. Well, what are, what are your beliefs? <sighs> okay, so my uh, as regards to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, like I said before, I think this... No, yeah. as regard to the question of white supremacy and how it's used and the utility of the term white supremacy. It's, what, it's exactly what you just explained before, that people essentially shed themselves of a previously existing cultural identity, or at least minimize it so as to subsume and assimilate into a greater white whole. Like, I think that that is, the construction of whiteness is entirely predicated on that. So the, yeah. a lot of our friends and colleagues in academia, I think people like Gerald Horn and Dr. CBS, et cetera, I think that, and then in my world up until this point, have very freely used the term white supremacy and have called a lot of different things white supremacy. And I think that that's right, probably... But, this, but when they, well, I think when they say that, though, like, okay, so when a Gerald Horn uses a phrase like white supremacy, you need to understand it differently than when a Ta-Nehisi Coates uses white supremacy. Gerald Horn is understanding white supremacy through an entirely historical materialist sense, whereas the Ta-Nehisi Coates is using it through like I said, like a sort of like a, a pop culture Afro-pessimistic sense where whiteness is like some sort of primordial force of human nature that has no fixed uh, point of origin, has probably almost always existed. It's almost like, uh, you you call it racecraft. I call it like evolutionary biology for people who don't read shit. You, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's just, it's made up and fictive bullshit for people that don't have a proper class analysis you can put white supremacy down to a particular year as far as in practice and in theory you can you can you can talk about who the founders of white supremacy even are if you look up the name francois bernier that is the person through which you can understand how white supremacist classification came to exist in our minds today to begin with. If you look up the Barbados slave codes, if you look up the, the, the greater British slave codes, which did also originate in Barbados, the idea of hereditary slavery, which was unique to the British colonies, uh, that, that all came about in the 18th and 19th century. It is not thousands and thousands of years old. So the, the, when, when Gerald Hoare talks about this, he understands it well enough. When Dr. Sharice Burton-Selly talks about it, she understands it well enough. But I think a lot of people who have this very like pop Afro-pessimist idea, and I'm trying to differentiate Afro-pessimism proper from like this sort of pop culture spinoff. When, when people like, uh, 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 what's his name that writes for the, uh, the Atlantic used to write for Slate, Adam, it's going to come back to me in a second. That's right. Sure. Adam, Adam Serwer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. When he says things like, you know, the cruelty is the point or his like, you know, his his grandiose takes on white supremacy. It's like, I understand that you're probably well read on American history, but are you well read on global history? Do you understand slave history? Do you understand history from a historical materialist point of view? Absolutely fucking not. And the reason that you're writing things in this way and you're making Trump out to be like the final boss of white supremacy is because you can't understand how white supremacy functions within a capitalist system. You're not a Gerald Horn. You're not a Dr. Sharice Burton Stelly. None of this stuff is, it's just words. So I, I understand, I understand your frustration, but I, I don't think you can okay. take the term itself and say, we have to throw this term out altogether. It's though you have to just stop people from misusing the term. Well, I, Okay. Well, I'm not saying anything about anything. I'm I'm asking what we should do and how you perceive it. And my my next question is, if no one can tell the difference between Adam Serwer's application of the term and Dr. CBS's application of the term, right. what do we do with that? Because the reality is, 
what's happening broadly with CRT and a lot of stuff is that what was once courted off in academia for a variety of reasons is now public because of the internet, because of social media, because of Christopher Rufo intentionally drumming up CRT as a boogeyman. For all of these reasons, a lot of what used to be kind of like private conversations are now very, very public. And we have to deal with the consequences of that from a political perspective. And I'm not saying it's Dr. CBS's job or that she, someone like her needs to change her language at all. But there is a question about what to do within the public sphere and what the conversation I just had with um, Batia right. um, like literally hours ago was about the public perception of terms like that and what they do what 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 the, how they serve the kind of left media sphere why it is that people like Don Lemon and, and Anderson Cooper or Charles Blow or whoever it is that gets to go on these MSNBC panels seem so eager to talk in terms of white supremacy even though they don't even know what it means to your point in any real way because it makes the right people feel guilty enough like it, they can shed their guilt by inviting a you know charles blow on their show and by giving him more airtime you will have it's like a, it's like catholic indulgences almost you know what i mean yeah it's like if you let if you yeah, let these people Batia. talk then you are less white supremacist yeah that's that's Batia's argument and basically what she says is that that kind of racial guilt replaces a more productive kind of economic guilt that all these people are like millionaires sitting on the tv and it and having black people in particular, she doesn't say this because she doesn't really critique kind of the black intelligentsia the way that I would or you know Pascal Robert would, but that the black intelligentsia in particular launder like they serve the purpose of pretending that they're, they're like co-signing everything that comes out of the white liberalism's mouth and that they're an essential part of that. Um, and obscuring the extent to which no one's actually advocating for any kind of economic equity, but they have absolutely no economic guilt at all. That might drive the kind no. of po- you know social policy that we are advocating for on the left. Well, what it does is enable uh, the enables the the raft of policies that are entirely like neoliberal and imperialist in nature to continue unabated and unchallenged. It's like if if we can if we can. Uh, just reform ourselves or educate ourselves enough to not be racist, then the underlying structure should be more or less fine. Like we have, we have the blueprint for what we need to make a successful and egalitarian society. All we need to do is fix what's in our minds. So that's where you get this like corporatization and this like, uh, like medicalization of white supremacy, racism, et cetera. On the corporate level, you have it with people like uh, Robin D'Angelo that goes and leads these diversity seminars to rooms full of white people. Uh, it's like, it was just wild to me how the, the 2020 uprisings ended up making her like a, a millionaire many times over because everyone was recommending her stupid ass book. But then uh, on the on the medicalization side, people talk about racism like it's a disease, like it's a, like it's a mental illness, like there's something wrong with you. And it's like, no, like these these are simple, like this is how hegemony works. Brianna, if you were to read Gramsci, you would understand understand how this works right if you if you have a a, um, a violent idea that is a, that is purposely inflicted by a dominant class of people 
at some point, because you don't want to have violence inflicted on you, you begin to absorb those ideas and replicate them yourselves without being told to do so. And at the point where violence is no longer necessary, that's what's called hegemony. And we live under a capitalist hegemonic structure, which is why these conversations continue to take place and why people like us are continually frustrated. But it's like, can you not can you not see that none of this is making any fucking difference whatsoever? No one's ever going to be able to talk the relatives out of being racist. Like this is this is entirely based in our commonality through class. Can we have a conversation about that? I don't have anything in common with a Charles Blow. I don't have anything in common with a Jada Smith Pinkett. I don't have anything in common with a Ta-Nehisi Coates. The people that have anything in common with what? are well, the folks that like that work at the I, Amazon fulfillment warehouse. Okay, I also don't think that I don't think it's necessary to overstate the case. I think that it's possible to have certain cultural, racial things and co- cultural things in common. I do have something in common with Jada Pinkett Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith wasn't Jada Pinkett Smith for the first 20, 25 years of her life. She's been a multimillionaire for far longer than she wasn't. Is what I'm trying to say. That's fine. She's still a black woman in America. And I still, I, I just don't think I need to do these absolutist arguments. Right. It's both true that she has her class identity. And it's also true that she's a black woman. And we have some things in common because of that. She's also an American. We have things in common from that. She's a woman. She have to, like, I, I, I don't, you know. Okay. Like, when I say, when I say uh, her life, her life and my life look nothing similar is what I'm trying to say. Right. Her and her husband's life and my life look nothing similar. But also my life is not very similar to someone who works at an Amazon fulfillment center. I also want to be honest and transparent about that. Right. You know I'm not I mean? well, that's the thing. Well, I I I I I'm not very far off from that myself. You know, like where where I was in my I I did work for the financial industry for a long, very long period of time. I worked in the financial industry for about 9 years, right? But for the majority of my life, I've been not uh financially stable for a lot longer than I have been financially stable. Right? It's only been out of the maybe like the last 10 to 12 years out of my life that I have been. For everything prior to that, I was not so the person working at the Amazon Fulfillment Warehouse, I kind of feel like if I have a financial hiccup, I might end up looking for work right alongside them. Well, we've had some people who are very patiently in the queue for a while now. So maybe we should just take a couple of questions that might help us ground ourselves a little bit. Sure. How do you feel about uh, that? Yeah, that's great. All right, Andy, you're up. Oh, Andy's changed his mind. Okay, Sal, you're up. Yeah, so my question is a bit more to Andre. So would Franz Fanon be like spinning in his grave uh, given the current circumstances today of the voting class, how they vote? Like, for example, for Joe Biden, meanwhile, he's like arming, like uh, destroying Ethiopia, a bunch of other countries in not only Africa, but uh, the, the, the South, uh, uh, anywhere from Venezuela, et cetera, uh, to Nicaragua. Would they be shocked by this that, you know, the the generation of the 60s, 70s, you know, the Malcolm X's of that era, would they be shocked that right. uh, blacks are voting against uh, their own uh, distant cousins, let's say, not their personal interests, but uh, against that? Would they be shocked by that? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on it since you were talking about it. I think I think Franz Fanon probably has his feet up on a couch. Uh, you know, smoking a cigar in whatever corner of heaven he's in right now, uh, smiling to himself, saying, "I was fucking right," because what he talks about, and, and I'm assuming that you're um, you're pulling from Wretched of the Earth when you're talking about this, you know, yeah, living against yeah, our own interests and so forth. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so he not only has he talked about this, but uh, Kwame Ture has talked about this also, and that's that uh, the gains of the revolution are always squandered away by the uh, the reactionary um, sort of the the compradors. 
afterwards. So whatever you, you're able to accelerate for yourself, your, your group of people, uh, your brothers and sisters and so forth is always going to be returned back to the dominant power structure by people that are looking to assimilate into that dominant power structure. So uh, there was actually a really good article in Newsweek that was uh, written by um, Pascal. Uh, Brianna, Pascal wrote an article in Newsweek actually talking about this. Yeah, I retweeted it and talked about it with the... Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, the, the, the class of black people right now that represents quote-unquote black America to the extent that you can do that are essentially like, you know, black bourgeois and petty bourgeois people. Uh, and their interests do not align with, for the most, like for most of the black working class. But what they have been able to do is highlight their racial solidarity um, and uh, completely dispense with any sort of like class or economic solidarity. So they don't have to necessarily work on the economic uh, interests of that class. And I don't think there's any better example of that than the fact that, you know, during the, the 2020 uprisings, what people were asking for is for at the very least, like, you know, there was abolishing the police and defunding the police and so on. I think at the very least, what people were asking for is more accountability for police. And they couldn't even get that. The the Congressional Black Caucus basically said, or they just threw up their hands and said, eh, we give up, it's not going to happen this term around. You know, maybe better luck next time. So do I think that uh, Franz Fanon would be spinning in his grave? No, I think he'd be looking at the class of black people that are able to uh, pull their respective levers and uh, create policy outcomes and know that that's the exact, exact class of people that he was talking about when he wrote Wretched of the Earth. Okay, so now I'm going to do something very explosive. I've been saying this for years, and I've had a lot of people uh, back me up on this, Is especially in Silicon Valley, is to me, the whole diversity initiatives, everything like that is just a false flag operation. It's a subterfuge. It's basically a, another like a way to get more white women into things. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, I have my own thoughts on it. Uh, I have metrics and numbers to back it up, but I just, yeah. I'm wondering... Or your thoughts on it? Because like it's not there to help out. It's basically like Bill Gates's daughter is the same thing as some kid from Harlem, uh, and to me, they're not the same. No, I, uh, I mean the primary beneficiary beneficiaries of affirmative action have been white women, and uh, it, I've. I can't even tell you the number of times where I've seen media panels or tech panels, et cetera, because I work in both media and the tech industry. Yeah, uh, where they've I, said, well, you know, we have a diverse panel, and it is—it's a wall-to-wall panel of white people, right? And they've—they've they've got some—they've got women on the panel, and they consider that to be diversity. And there's no better uh, um, like descriptor of how much of a fraud this diversity pushes in the tech industry then when you look at who it is that the uh chief diversity officer is answerable to are they answerable to the ceo are they basically like is it the cto and the coo and the cfo and the cdo or does the chief diversity officer answer to somebody else that's on that c level before the ceo if you're not answerable directly to the ceo you don't really have a position or have any power you're just a uh you're you're window dressing you know, you're, you're, no, but, just, but he, he, your even lines. then, even then they're putting the daughter of Bill Gates at the same level as someone from say Harlem. Like to me, that's not the right. same. No, no. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right. And I think that, uh, the way that as a matter of fact, I have uh, friends that are, um, like are in training programs to get into the tech industry and they've asked me for advice or what I think, or, you know, how they can, you know, like fix up the resumes and the LinkedIn's and so on and any kind of career advice I have. And, and my advice is always, 
make your money, get what, do what you need to do to get on your feet and just get the fuck out because this is going to frustrate the hell out of you. They're going to talk a good game about how much they value you as a member of the family, how much uh, they value diversity, how they're trying to make changes. They're trying to have like broader representation and more ideas. And the truth of the matter is they want have, they want to have people of different identities say and do the same shit that they were doing in the first place. They're not actually looking for any kind of structural systemic change within their industries. And a really good example of that is when Timnit Gebru, who was a data analyst for uh, Google, um, let them know that some of their uh, machine learning processes were going to end up reifying existing prejudices and they fired her. They got rid of her. They didn't want to hear that shit. So yeah, they, they don't take any of this stuff seriously. It is... It comes around when people squawk loud enough and then they create some position that uh, a a, uh, a person who was previously unable to move up in the industry can fill for a certain period of time before they move on to the C-level themselves. Uh, and then they end up hiring a bunch of people that came out of Ivy League universities or came from the, uh, the upper class or just don't hire anybody else at all. Oftentimes there are no changes in the employer or the employee metrics. If you look at companies like Google, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, uh, it, that's excluding warehouse workers, even smaller companies like Hootsuite that I know have had diversity officers come in and do an evaluation of them and give them recommendations. They don't do jack shit to change any of it. So no, it is all a crock, as you said. Thank you. Yeah, Sal. Thank you. Brianna, one quick question. Uh, you, you've talked a lot about mm -hmm. like being beyond a lot of these labels. Um, the believe women part, uh, how does it relate to like when you go back in history, like figures like Emmett Till, who they lynched, and the, you have to believe the white woman. Like, how does that relate to what it is today? Does that mean anything to you? Or um, I've never subscribed. I've never, I always thought it was a silly hashtag. The whole point is that a group that has historically been default disbelieved um, should be listened to like everybody else, not taken as gospel. I also have a lot of skepticism about the hashtag trust black women nonsense because they never mean me. It's all politicized and selective and it's a farce. So I think the, the fact of the matter is that we've had a society and like a criminal justice system that makes the burden of proof for women who have been victims very, very difficult. And that the purpose of Believe Women was to shift the burden a little bit so that women didn't have such an uphill climb and felt like there was gonna be more social support if they came forward. Um, not that they should be kind of knee jerk, believed regardless of what evidence exists or that there shouldn't be um, any, uh, reasonable, you know, there shouldn't be any um, presumption of innocence or anything like that. Right. And so, yeah, I think, it, I think it was never, I think it was never a thing. Um, with respect to the earlier conversation though, about um, uh, diversity inclusion workshops and stuff in the, in the corporate world. Now, one of the few people I think on the left that's really spent a large amount of time in, in the corporate world. I mean, I worked as an attorney for seven years. And I, I always find kind of the venom directed at diversity inclusion efforts in those spaces to be kind of interesting because my problem with DEI work is that it is kind of presented as though it's going to solve racism, which is not really the goal. The goal is to protect companies from lawsuits. 
Yeah. And I'm not saying that's like, it's not a lofty goal, but for a person like myself, who's working in those environments, I certainly didn't see those programs as a problem. You know, people said and did things that made my life harder in those spaces. And to the extent that some folks felt like they were being policed or that there was any like sanction of those behaviors, you know, or, or censor of those behaviors, I thought was a good thing. But what they, what they really did was reveal the extent to which no one cared. So I remember there being one instance where they separated the partners and the attorneys into two groups. So the attorneys could talk about, like think of that as an affinity group, right? Some people don't like diversity groups or affinity groups separated by race or gender, but they just did it by partners and associates. And the associates went into a room and talked about issues they've had with leadership, workflow, how treatment, upper mobility opportunities being limited by X, Y, and Z reason. And we came up with a list of questions we had for partners. The partners are supposed to do the same issues they've had with communicating well with subordinates. When we came back, we had a very serious list. When they came back, they were literally giggling like school children. And they had literally one of their points was, one of their questions was, what do you do if an associate's office smells so bad you can't go in? <laughs> like literally making body odor jokes about associates in a, in a diversity and inclusion scenario, Jesus right? Christ. And also there was no interest. So somehow, some way, I, I ended up being the head of the, the Asian American affinity group. A thankless job doing this work for any of the groups. It didn't matter. All it did was, all it did was t- suck up your time, make it so you were billing fewer hours, set you up for professional failure. And it was a big risk, right? Because you couldn't do anything that was particularly useful or challenging the status quo or like affecting lifestyle of the life of the firm or else you were in trouble, right? You were supposed to just basically plan a dinner at a Vietnamese restaurant or something. <laughs> um, so what I did when I knew I was leaving the firm was I hired this woman, I got this woman who had written a book about the bamboo ceiling, the limits on Asian Americans making partner and on the partner track to come in and talk about her book. And she, you know, went in about all of the systemic issues at law firms that prevent advancement for both women and particularly Asian Americans. And people were looking at me like with daggers in this because they thought that it was going to be a nice little meeting where everyone got pat on the head for like being inclusive and like hiring Asian associates. And this woman was like, no, I had to leave the law because this was bullshit. And I was I had the hunt to do that because I knew I was on the way out the door. But there was no part of my role as an affinity director in that realm that was supposed to be actually furthering the advancement of the constituency groups I was supposed to be representing. Um, so that's how I feel <laughs> about that. Um, I need to remove Sal from the queue. Thank you for those questions and take Jay as the next caller. Can, 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 can I just say one thing? Sure. Uh, and that is, you know, I, your point about trust black women, I just find it really funny how it was all trust black women until MSNBC or whoever would put you on a panel. And all of a sudden, suddenly it's it's okay to just completely shit on you, right? Oh, a hundred percent. There's a, I mean, there's a classic Onion article that's like, I love you know trust brown women unless they don't agree with me or something, and it has a big picture of the squad at the top, and it's it's great. Yeah. Um, Jay, what's crackalacking? Hi, Brianna. Can you hear me? I can. Hi. So I, I've been a longtime listener of Bad Faith. Um, I've I've listened to both the episodes with Professor Army and. I think that his main thesis and proposals are both intrinsically wrong and, and really tactically ridiculous. I think the, the logical conclusion of Professor Army's sort of line of thought is that we on the left um, should go to poor 
white working class communities who have been devastated by neoliberal policies, had their jobs outsourced or automated and effectively had their cities deindustrialized, have been plagued not only by COVID, but also by the opioid epidemic and have been ultimately abandoned by both the left and the right. And we should go to them and tell them how privileged they are and, and sort of get them to accept and internalize that they are privileged in society. And I think that's a ridiculous and frankly cold strategy that's that's sure to fail. And I think something that really struck me in the last podcast is when that point was like sort of uh, made in a, in a small way. And Professor Army said, uh, you know, even poor whites can still lean on their whiteness. And I think there's obviously an element of truth to that. You know, a poor white who is a poor white person who is uh, has a police encounter or something like that does still have their whiteness that they can lean on. But ultimately, what does that mean when someone is, you know, suffering miserably in this sort of capitalist hellscape that they're in. And I just wish that Zayd would have given that type of pushback, but I, uh, I, I don't think he did. Wait, was that for me? Brianna, are Sorry, you there? Sorry, my bad. I, I muted myself, my bad. Okay. I was wondering okay. what you make of that because it resonates with me that there are a lot of people who, I know a lot of black people, a lot of middle-class black people who really have a difficult time with the idea of poor whites not still being privileged. And the whole point of intersectionality, right, is that yes, there can be benefits of whiteness at the same time that you have like real deficits in other areas that still mean you're overall lacking in privilege. But that concept, intersectionality tends to go out the window when class gets involved. I, okay. There's a reason why when I go outdoors, which is not very often because I work from home and I like it that way. I hope to never set foot in an office again. But when I go outdoors, I, I carry bills in my wallet. And the reason for that is if somebody asks for it, I don't want to not have bills in my, my wallet. Now, if somebody asks me for money, I am I going to consider whether it's a white person asking me for money? I mean, it's funny to joke about on social media, but the answer is no. No, I'm not. If somebody needs money from me, I'm going to give them money. If somebody asks me for help finding housing, I'm going to help them find housing. If somebody needs help sprucing up the resume or finding a job, I'm going to do what I can to help them. Like This is what I spent a significant portion of last year doing was delivering groceries and helping people find housing and just like trying to do what little I could do to plug the gigantic gaps that existed. Am I going to think about whether this is a white person or not? I don't fucking care. It's just somebody that's in need of help. At the same time, if somebody asks me, hey, uh, can you support our union drive? Can you you know, promote it on social media? Or, hey, there's going to be uh, a demonstration against uh, this hotel downtown that hasn't been paying their workers proper wages and has let people go with the excuse of COVID. But really, they were looking to let people go in the first place. There's a labor action. Can you come down and uh, you know take some pictures or publicize it or just like stand next to us as a, a body holding a placard? And I say, absolutely. I don't ask what color any of these people are. So I, I think like... I think what this conversation has done is addle our brains so much. This like it's not intersectionality because Kimberly Crenshaw has clarified herself so many times, and people refuse to listen to what she says anyway. It's like this this pop version of intersectionality where like the more 
so like the more seemingly identify or seemingly marginalized identities you can claim it's like it's like stacking them up like fucking pokemon cards right or like a or, or like or like a like a magic right. the gathering deck that's not how that shit works you don't just right. your your class privilege is not going to be offset by this that or the third marginalized identity that you have so i i i guess my answer to that is at the heart of it like the 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 primary contradiction that exists right now and for a very long time has been class contradictions those are the primary and antagonistic contradictions racial contradictions as we understand race are not primary and they're not antagonistic just the same way that gender is not a primary and not an antagonistic contradiction is it is it uh, a friction that exists yes it does it mean that we can't work in solidarity together absolutely the fuck not and i think that anybody that's making that argument or implies it by the way that they construct this idea of quote-unquote white supremacy is selling you a bill of goods yeah it's hard i mean i literally just had this argument again sorry with batya and the definition she you know she takes issue with intersectionality in her book and part of the reason why is that she uses the definition that she says she got from kimberly crenshaw that uses the word compounded that each kind of marginalized identity compounds the next. And I was like, I don't recall that word being a part of intersectionality, right? Because that does, that is an argument that it's about, you know, adding up, stacking up oppression points and seeing who's on the, on the top dog. I think that because of the primacy of race and people's analysis of privilege, it's very difficult for people to appreciate a, that a white poor person would ever be struggling or that even like a white middle-class person can reasonably feel precarity. And that as much as whiteness does operate as an advantage in certain contexts in America, it's not a get out of jail free card. And that if everyone's basically, you know, if the top 20% own more than the bottom, you know, top six families own more than the bottom half or whatever the stat is, then you're just talking about a lot of, <laughs> just a lot of people who are just not winning in any circumstance. And I think a lot of upper, upperly mobile black people are, for the same reason the Don Lemons and stuff, there's, an, there's a certain investment. You get to get off guilt-free if you can see yourself through that lens. And I struggle with not wanting to sound like I'm doing what conservatives do and say, oh, you're, you love a victim mentality because then you don't have responsibility and da da da, da. But there, there is a way that I think that some, some of that thinking by bourgeois black sometimes lets us off the hook. We don't have to grapple with our place in the system because of our blackness. And on the whole, we do have a lot less than our white contemporaries. Like I look at myself, I look at the other people who graduated from law school with me. I see their brownstone, you know, in Prospect Park and I see my studio apartment with a stucco ceiling. And it is what it is. But I also don't want to lose perspective of how much I do have, you know, and it's a tough sell. People don't want to hear that most poor people in America are white. People, people don't want to hear. I mean, to say the words economic anxiety, you're called a white supremacist these days. Like you are called, you are, you are told that you are. Like my colleague, friend and colleague, Mehdi Hassan will like tell you that it's basically a code word for racism at this point. Yeah. Well, I think that making the, the, uh, the phrase working class, a, uh, a code word for, for racism 
it kind of it, it betrays right. their own interests. You know what I mean? Like everybody who's been who's been saying, "Well, do you do you mean the white working class?" No, stupid. I said working class. You're the one that threw the word white in there. This is your own psychology at work, not anything that came out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, do you have any thoughts about how to get around that? Because it's a catch-22, right? Like, Thomas Frank literally wrote an article about the working class and how we need to appeal to them, like, a few years ago during one of these last campaign cycles. And people slammed him for writing about how we need to focus more on the white working class when the word white did not appear white, Caucasian, light-skinned. No, no white adjacent word appeared in this entire piece. Just do what I do. Call them stupid and move on. <laughs> I, I don't have any interest in appealing to people that are, are that like neurotic about making sure that your linguistic structure fits into their idea of justice. If you can't tolerate the words working class showing up in your newspaper or on your phone screen, there's nothing I can really do for you. I'm sorry. Well, one of Batia's points is about the lack of economic diversity in the newsroom. And there's an argument that just having actual working class people around, including working class Black people, could go a long way to resisting those kinds of narratives. And this is something that Bertrand Cooper argued on the show in the context of like who gets to write Black TV characters and that as a genuinely working class black person, he doesn't feel like his perspective is represented because the people who get to write are like the the Issa Rays and the Stanford grads and stuff of the world. And they are writing all black experiences, including a working class black experience that they haven't actually had. And if that's a problem, then maybe there's something to that that argument. That that he, he says that he's no, in this is, and class this is true. And stuff. And that sometimes black people like middle class black people go start waxing poetic about what it is to be black and like you know prejudice and stuff, and then he's he tells an anecdote about growing up in a crack den and everyone just gets quiet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know, oh my god, this is this is not just endemic to like newsrooms right now where you have like these. I don't want to say middle class blacks because I, I don't think that's necessarily fair, but uh, you know, black people who grew up with a certain degree of privilege that a lot of their their peers don't have, at least in in black communities, don't have. Uh, or maybe grew up in like predominantly white communities, but it's almost like they they have this like this like mm-hmm. this psychological fixation on proving themselves black, but not to other black people. It's to their white peers in the classroom, the news, and whatever. And I think for them, it's like, well, I have a certain degree of cachet and accessibility that you don't have, so you should just take my word for things. And then you take them around, like take them to the neighborhood where I grew up, and people would just fucking laugh at them. You know what I mean? So I don't I don't think it's necessary to take any of these people seriously, and that's probably why i'm not gonna get many more invites on cable news shows because people know that i just have nothing but disdain for them let's let's hear from uh let's hear from gabrielle hello can you hear me hello i can yes okay good i might have a solution to uh solve the racism within one generation so hear me out (laughs) (laughs) okay so um that's a big lead gabrielle (laughs) so don't you think that there's a kind of a self-inflicted segregation that still exists in the U.S. in the sense that black people have a tendency to stay in the same neighborhood and white people do the same same thing for various races? And don't you think that by having some mixed unions, um, that will help a lot? Like, for instance, if you have, I'm I myself, I'm a French Canadian, and my mother is from Egypt, 
And because my parents have the same value scale, I mean, there was no no problem, basically, like, just having a good relationship. And I don't want to say that I'm not racist, but, <laughs> but compared to others, I think I'm fairly open, more open, and because I'm I'm aware of the situation of the of the migrant and also of like people who have been here for centuries, um, so I don't I don't see that in the U.S. Like there's no there's like a sense of community that that in my sense it's kind of it's kind of painful to hear because there's no there's some weird sense of proud that some. Uh, that sounds like extremely racist, man, but that's that's not it at all. But what I'm trying to say is, perhaps uh, it would be a lot better if there would be less segregation, like self, less self-inflicted segregation. Uh, okay. Gabriel, je ne pense pas que nous puissions sortir de racisme, mon ami. I don't think we can fuck our way out of racism. Um, I don't think that like, you know, mixed race unions or, uh, because I mean, if that was, if that was possible, it would have happened literally hundreds of years ago. There's not a, a black person, uh, alive who can't, tra uh, there's not a black person in, in like, you know, North America, the Caribbean and so forth that has like ancestral ties to those lands who is alive that doesn't have some degree of, uh, like other cultural backgrounds you know both my myself and my fiance are brown skinned and one of my daughters came out with Brianna's complexion and one of them is very light skinned right <laughs> the reason for that is cuz my great great grandfather was scottish uh and his father was a plantation owner so I, i don't think that that's necessarily the answer and i also don't agree with the idea that um you know there's a like a self se i've i've heard this one a lot Hey, Brianna, are you in traffic right now? Someone's trying to get you out the way. No, are you double parked? I'm sorry. I I live in a, I live just north of the Bronx. Leave me alone. I'm at home for the holiday. <laughs> It's all good. Um, I I don't really agree with the idea that uh, black people self segregate. I mean, uh, coming from an income or coming from a lower income neighborhood, like I was born into a neighborhood that was like subsidized housing, and the first thing the first thing that people want to do when they start making a little bit of money is move out, like. Black folks want to move to better neighborhoods. And the reason that they haven't been able to traditionally in, in American history, at least, is because of policies like redlining and blockbusting. When when black people are looking for homes in neighborhoods that aren't predominantly black, uh, the homeowners in those neighborhoods will band together to find ways to keep them out, either legally or otherwise. Uh, redlining didn't exist as a, as a policy in Canada, but there were discriminatory housing practices that stopped people from being able to buy homes in uh, more diverse neighborhoods, or at least uh, predominantly white neighborhoods. So I, I think some of that has to do with structural matters and a really good person to read. Sorry, Brie, I'm going to drop a book recommendation in here is uh, Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton's book, um, Black Power. If you read that book, the entire first chapter is is, de is dedicated to describing how it is that interpersonal racism differs from structural racism. And I think some people have the idea that if you talk about structural or systemic racism, you're saying that everybody within the system is racist. And that's not what that means. What it means is that these structures create racist outcomes, even without the intention of people working within those systems to create those racist outcomes. So, yeah, I agree. I think 
that there are a lot of people who quite obviously are mixed race and their parents are not the racial heroes that people would like to believe and their children have very complicated lives as a consequence. I don't, we touched upon this in my interview with Thomas Chatterson Williams recently, who, you know, has a black parent and a white parent and, you know, was married to a white woman and has, you know, had some complex interactions with white kin as a consequence of these relationships, not the person immediately in the relationship, but the broader family unit. I know plenty of people who are in relationships with, for example, white women who have very problematic views on things and the men just decide they don't care, (laughs) which is, you know, a choice. But then the children have to grow up in this world with that parent who is not necessarily able to provide the same kind of insights and kind of psychic care that a different kind of parent may have either a more woke white parent or a non-white parent might have been able to do. And, you know, there's consequences for that. I think people like to have sex and sometimes they like to have sex with people of other races and it doesn't mean a damn thing about what their politics are. Um, Yeah. That is just the world. Uh, I also think I would complicate, I, I agree with your point about most uh, segregation not being by choice, Andre. Although I was thinking as the cars honked outside in um, uh, Mount Vernon, money urn in Mount Vernon, uh, about the fact that like my stepfather moved to this house, um, you know, in the nineties, even though he could have afforded to live in a, like a tonier part of Westchester, he didn't want to, he wanted to live in a black neighborhood. Um, he didn't want to be like a big black guy who was like the only black guy in his Westchester neighborhood. And I do think that there are some people like that. You do see sometimes black people not wanting to be exposed to racism, kind of self-selecting out of different kinds of environments, which I think is a legitimate choice, but one that ultimately does have downstream financial impacts, right? Like your house, your housing value doesn't go up in the same way it would have been in a different neighborhood that you had bought in 20, 25 years ago. Um, and it's, it's an interesting, just psychological case study. I'm not saying it's a, it's not a good choice or a bad choice, but it's just another way that racism and people's feeling of discomfort in different kinds of spaces because of racism has these really interesting downstream effects that aren't necessarily good. Um, we've been here for an hour and 41 minutes. What do you think? Maybe just a couple more questions. Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's take Andrew and Ursula, and then I'm going to call it. Hi. Uh, Hi. So I just wanted to make one quick comment and then uh, ask a question. One of the uh, things I wanted to mention was that there was apparently a black man and woman, uh, his daughter, patrolling Kenosha that night with rifles, um, and then all the night of the shooting, and then also the day of the verdict. Ford Fisher interviewed the father. I believe his name was Jordan. His daughter's name was Jade. Um, so I just think that's important for some people to know. And then, uh, patrolling, patrolling they, they, for, to protect Black Lives Matter. No, they were, I believe property. they said that they were protecting a business. I think it was a restaurant. Um, mm. but, uh, my question, was it their restaurant? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Um, but it was in defense of the property, which is the principle that I was thinking of. And I wanted to ask Andre if that's all right. Um, 
is there a line between houses and businesses when it comes to this private property um the stance you take about what it whether it's moral or not for people to be defending private property because i do worry about that of this idea that that's just another piece of private property and they could have insurance on it or it's not even theirs because the bank owns it. And so is that fair game as well as businesses? You know, no, I don't, I don't think so. Cause the house is where you live, you know, a business. So what, what is contained within a house are people, I mean, possessions, yes, but that's where you live. A business is where possessions are kept for the purpose of commerce. So I, I don't think that, I don't think that any reasonable person would say that, uh, you know, running down a random city block and uh, throwing a Molotov cocktail through random citizens' windows is anywhere remotely reasonable to uh, breaking the windows of a car dealership and stealing the vehicles inside. I think, and generally you just, you don't find that happening with protests. I think that's a bit of a slippery slope argument that doesn't necessarily bear out in real life. What people generally take their anger out against are the uh, the class that they believe is oppressing them, and that normally bears out in the marketplace where where people are doing business, retail shops, etc. So, no, I think there's there's a fairly significant difference, and I don't think that most reasonable people wouldn't draw that same line. I'm glad that you're saying that. And I just can make one more quick comment. I would say that uh, I do blame the police in Kenosha for the riot um, that night. They'd specifically started a riot by firing tear gas and rubber bullets at the courthouse. They pushed them into the town, blocked off the way back to the courthouse, and then they just stood there. And uh, the thing I worry about is I think reasonable people aren't involved in riots necessarily all the time. And what if they pushed them into a residential area? You know, I think the Kenosha police knew what they were doing, but they didn't push them into a residential area. They pushed them into a business area. No, they they definitely did do that on purpose. I mean, there's like literal maps of where the protesters were kettled, and yeah, they it, they could have pushed them simply like out like out of the vicinity of the businesses and out of the vicinity of the uh, the counter protesters. And I I believe they deliberately pushed them into contact with one another. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and I know that you weren't looking for my insights on that, but I think it's an important point as to whether they were guarding their own business. Because the principle we were talking about before was whether or not, broadly speaking, in a broad generalization, Black people feel, might feel the same instincts to protect unrelated property, not their own. Uh, Spencer, you're up. Spencer, you're unmuted, but I can't hear anything. All right, the app. All right, Spencer. Oh, there you go. Now I can. Yes. Hey, hello. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, both to Andre and Brianna. As far as like you know, edutainment, pop culture, uh, online left uh, stuff goes, I think you two are very uh, insightful. Uh, I, I followed you both for a while, and I, I really appreciate what you what you bring to the conversation, and I appreciate the conversation you've had today. So thanks, thanks to you both. I, uh, I, I want, thank you, Spencer. Yeah, of course, uh, I just wanted to touch on what y'all were talking about earlier with uh, about irony. I've been also watching the Funky Academic for a while, and while I I kind of see what I, where Andre's coming from, like in terms of what Irony's trying to say, because like I I also feel like I get what Irony's trying to say, but 
I don't know. At the same time, like I, I can't help, I can't help but see what you mean, Brianna. That like he's, it, it's, it's, it's alienating to most people, to anybody who doesn't read. And while I agree that it's extremely important to read, I think we can all agree that most people don't read. Uh, so I just wanted to say that, and I also wanted to bring. I saw this tweet he said earlier. Uh, I'll just read it here. He said, "People ask why I use the whites instead of white people, because it's not about a color, but an ethnicity. I'm not talking about people who are white. I'm talking about the whites." I, I honestly don't know what he means by that, but I'm curious to see Me what y'all think. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, I, I saw that tweet. I don't, I don't, I don't have a clue. And again, I don't think it's useful to inject ambi- ambiguous terms when you know they're going to be read as racial stereotyping. You are, you are literally doing racial stereotyping. And then you know we live in a world where everyone does nonstop racial stereotyping about Black people in a way that is extremely detrimental. And you think that you're kind of going to be able to bully the broader white community, like you're doing the, just using their tools when you're in the minority. Like the thing, the, the biggest thing that, that bothers me about Army's approach, and his is a microcosm of the approach that a lot of like black folks have. Um, about the kind of woke until I hate, I don't want to be one who uses this word like that, but like the black intelligentsia have, the upper middle class educated black folks have, is you just got to get on board. That kind of attitude. Like I, I shouldn't have to explain anything to you. I don't have to make it easy for you. You know, the internet is free. Go do this, go do that. And I, on an emotional basis, I understand feeling overwhelmed and tired that having to explain to everybody in your predominantly white environments all the time how the world works. And it's frustrating. I get that. And interpersonally, on a one on one basis, I would never tell anybody they have a responsibility to do that. Of course. However, don't get it twisted. The reason you might have an incentive to do that is for your own benefit. I'm not explaining stuff to white people because I want their lives to be better. I want them just to be informed. I'm doing it because their attitudes inform my life and the life of people in my community, people who look like me. Because they go off and they become lawyers and judges and accountants and JP Morgan Lynch analysts and all these other kinds of things. And their attitudes affect my life outcome. And this this idea that like when when you are such a minority, we're 10% of the population black people. 10%. Okay? Like, sit around with our arms crossed like we own something and control something. Or we can just, like, boss people into doing what we want to do. Like, on what planet do you live? We are not in Jamaica. We are not a majority black country. I, like, that would be a different political reality. We would have different kind of racial motives. This is not Brazil. Like, we, we, we are not in charge. They're not in charge of Brazil either, but you get my point. <laughs> uh, no, okay. So, uh, I okay. There was a there was a really good interview with uh, Kiango Yamahata Taylor um, uh, and Public mm-hmm. Books back in the beginning of October, and uh, you know she was asked about uh, people who say things like "It's not my job to educate you." You know, I'm not I'm not being paid to tell you what racism is, and I I I kind of. I, I get what what Irony is saying because it's not necessarily everybody's job to have to explain these concepts. But if you are going to hold yourself out as somebody that has answers to how to, for example, properly analyze the Rittenhouse verdict or 
uh, like how white supremacy intersects with class or how gendered violence against black men is real and exists and that kind of stuff. And these are topics that are generally um, within Aramis wheelhouse. I think you do have to, to some degree, explain people. And as uh, Dr. Yamaha Taylor said, uh, or Dr. Taylor said, um, you can take the stance that it's not your job to educate people, but basically like the world is on fucking fire right now. Right? Like there's mm-hmm. the, the, the America is being seen as a collapsing, if not decadent empire. Uh, there's a, an insurgent right wing that is, that is basically like capturing populist energy. If you want to be able to say something, if you want to fill that void that liberalism is not doing, then yeah, it is your job to educate people. And yeah, it is your job to have enough patience to break down some of these concepts in terms that people can understand. And while they don't necessarily think it's always going to be the job of academics because their audience is other academics. And I think oftentimes there's a little bit of like spectacle and bravado thrown in there too, just to get more attention, citations, et cetera. At the same time, like, this is why I say Brianna, like it's, it's the job of people like yourself and myself. Like we're not academics where, I mean, I'm a, I'm a columnist and a writer. You know, you're a podcaster. It's our job to make these ideas accessible for people. So I, I just don't think that that stuff holds water when you're operating in the public sphere or holding yourself out as a public intellectual. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't jibe. Also, honestly, look, I, I, I really, the reason I have Iron Man is because I think that he, I really appreciate that he will stick to his guns and defend a position. Like, for example, I have been wanting, on, on the internet, the common liberal position is that the, the, when, when I say things like, let's, let's inquire as to whether or not the term white supremacy is a problem or it's being misapplied or it's being misunderstood or should we use different language? The overwhelming majority of people on the internet are like, oh my God, Brianna, you're caping for whites, you're coddling whites, da 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 Very few people will say that to my face. Irony will. And I appreciate that at least we can have the discussion because he's willing to say it to my face. All these other people, I get on the line and they will like, they back down from their position. They're like, well, I guess you have to have a point. Like, and that's great. Like, I guess if you agree with me, that's fine. But it makes for a less interesting conversation because obviously there are a lot of people out there that feel differently and I'd rather hash it up, right? So I appreciate him for that. At the same time, the whites, he's, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's being intentionally provocative and using the same kind of language that if applied to black people would be perceived as racist in a way that is a kind of like tit for tat, which I understand can be very satisfying when you're sitting around a table in a group of black people rolling your eyes about how crazy racism is and how upset you are at your co-worker Cheryl or whatever but in the broader world is a kind of racist language that I don't I I don't want to put out there because I don't want to give people permission to turn it around and use it against us like out of this mere sense of self-preservation I would never want to engage in that kind of language and it's confusing because he does sometimes talk about white people with the level of like I don't want to say vitriol. Like he obviously doesn't hate white. I mean, he's married to a white woman, which is you know neither here nor there. But like, oh no, oh no, oh god. Okay, what? No, I (laughs) I mean, it's just just confusing to me. And I would love to talk to him about that on the show. It's it's not proving the theory true. Oh god, I thought I expected better. Dr. Army. Oh no, how's I here defending you, bro? That's not a 
critique. I don't mean that. That's oh, hey, Bree, when like, are you going to... Bree, when are you going to have Dr. Umar on this show? Look, okay. We're not... <laughs> we will... I'm sure you'll wait about a minute at Racial Dating episode, but that is not today. <laughs> and, and I really don't want this to come off as, like, uh, like shade in any way. That's not how I intended to mean. But just to say that it's, like... It's 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 an interesting aspect. Give it. It's an interesting element. To all you may not bring your white wife. You may not bring your white wife. You may not bring your white wife. If you bring your white wife, you and the non-African will be escorted out. <laughs> oh Lord, you're gonna get me into trouble. Look, the point is, I don't think it's productive, but I appreciate that he is willing to moot the point, and I think that he is willing to engage in ideas honestly without hesitation, which makes him a useful interlocutor. And I appreciate him coming on the show. Andre, I also appreciate you coming on the show and spending almost two hours with us here tonight. And I appreciate all of you who have hung in there and listened. Can you tell all of our listeners where to find you both here on Colin and in the broader world? Absolutely. Uh, so the show that I do with Glenn Greenwald, which is called Unredacted, airs on Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also find my articles in McLean's Magazine and elsewhere. And on Twitter, I go by the same username that I do on here, Andre Demise. Or, oh yeah, it's Andre Demise, my full name, not Andre, because somebody else took that one first. But anyway, you can find me on these Twitter streets. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll find me on Brianna's debriefs more often, where I will force her to read theory and make her laugh at inappropriate racial jokes. Look, can I just say the thing about reading? obviously I read an enormous amount. My issue is the idea that I have to read things to understand. Like, this is going to sound so pompous and I'm sorry, but I have been, re- like, I have been a lot of things. There's nothing oh. wrong with son. Oh, me with I'm my not- Harvard education. I'm too good for reading. I've already read all there is to no. know. So go ahead. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying the opposite that so much of this is common sense. And I think that so much of the discourse is this person said and that person said when we're all saying the same thing and we didn't have to read it in a book. No, and, I, and no, I think, I think you're insights. right. And there's sometimes mm-hmm. there are insights in the books so that the books don't sometimes give terms to things that are useful shorthand when talking to other academics. But it also often makes the conversations more opaque when you're talking to real, like normal people. And sometimes I think that one okay. of my, my superpowers is being able to talk straight without saying, well, well, as Hegel said, I just say the thing. I just say the thing in plain terms because that all that I, other that lingo hasn't infected my brain. I okay, so I I think I agree that there is an extent to which theory posters have ruined everyone's fucking lives by telling them, "Oh, just read Lenin," or "Oh, just read Amilcar Cabral," or "Just read Fanon," or "Read Hegel." Or first of all, if you're telling people to read Hegel, um like as a flex you should be prosecuted for emotional abuse but if you if you don't <laughs> no it's it's no i think i think that is actually abusing people you know like i i i i the key to understanding class consciousness for me became unlocked when i read georg lukacs for the first time i would never make anybody read lukacs it's like chewing sawdust it it, it is i think it is to a degree it's like it's 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 sadomasochism right like it's like it's like the the Cenobites from Hellraiser. Uh, I, we have such sights to show you. Like you can't, you can no longer tell the difference between right, between so pleasure we're, and we're pain. On the same page. No, not exactly, because I think it is still important to read theory. I, I, now, do I do I think that without reading theory, then you you don't have anything important to say? No. One of my best friends uh, on Twitter, 
or you'll find her on Twitter. Her she goes by Nina Monet. Uh, arrives at very Marxist conclusions because she grew up poor and housing and financially unstable. So she understands a lot of these concepts without having to necessarily read the theory. She just has understood it through life. At the same time, she reads these theories in order to be able to better apply it and to have a better way of understanding it other than just, hey, this is me and my life and my truth and how I grew up because you're never going to be able to relate to everyone's truth through your own truth. That's sort of the basis of standpoint epistemology, which is the exact opposite, I think, of what socialists ought to be using to relate to other people. So I don't think it's necessary for everybody to read every thinker that ever existed. I'm not going to go to tell you to read Bookchin and Bukharin and whoever the fuck. But I am going to say, if you want to understand the basics of a theory or an ideology that you claim to have, i.e. socialism, you should, it would be a good idea to read the foundation if you're not, and if you're not, you can read all the read all the labels of capital because you're because right, you're right instead of your nice side of your right. And the people and the people the people that have to be like the people like the you know the the people that's reading all of that. Andre, you, you turned into a robot for the last like 20 seconds there. Oh, okay. Your voice went really gravelly. I'm not sure what's going on with the connection. It's not your fault. It's it's Colin. They're working out the kinks, but I'll go ahead and um, wrap this up and tell everybody, don't, just remember to subscribe to this as well so you'll know when we do episodes. I'm still working out the schedule. I'm thinking the day after a pot, uh, the Bad Faith, so Tuesdays and Fridays after the Mondays and Thursdays Bad Faith. Thursday, we will have a Thanksgiving episode. It's very good. It's a very kind of like light empathic almost like comfortable like and then it gets really intense and combative conversation with ben jealous who ran for governor of maryland who was a bernie surrogate in 2016 who also uh was the youngest ever president of the NAACP, and it's historical and we fight about the fund and it's like a whole thing um and we'll be talking about that and whatever else is going on in the world on friday so i hope to see you then as always keep the faith <laughs>